Amen. Thank you, Colson and the team for leading us so faithfully this morning. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you were here with us last week, uh, we re- we've now run into uh, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. Uh, we've made mention of this. Chapter 16 is a big turning point in Samuel, uh, a big uh, kind of tabletop element that then now we're going to have the uh, introduction of a new, we just had an introduction of a new character, David. Um, we have the continued interaction with Saul, uh, with his diminishing moving forward. And then last week we saw as well kind of our, one of our last uh, fewer interactions with Samuel as his role um, also diminishes in the narrative moving forward. Uh, It really, uh, the chapter 16 serves as two parts, and they both serve as uh, both introductions of sorts. Um, Last week, again, we we saw that David is introduced on the scene, and uh, David's introduction comes with his anointing in the first half of the book. Um, And then today, we're going to pick back up on that, on a second introduction, and this time it's the introduction into the current king's court. So last week was uh, the first part of this chapter is David being anointed uh, as future king, and then now we're running into uh, David here being inducted into the current king's court. Now, several people made comment uh, to me after the sermon and throughout the week uh, of really why, uh, why I didn't probably take more time last week uh, to begin to specifically go through these character f- f- uh, characteristics or physical characteristics of uh, David and, and specifically being mentioned that he was particularly ruddy. Um, in fact, one, uh, one couple uh, came up and proposed that uh, I had shared how I relate more easily to David than I did through Saul. Um, reading through Saul feels a little bit like the journey you just got to go through till you finally get to David, uh, who seems so much more relatable and so much more positive. And she was saying, well, um, you know, I bet you relate to him because you probably look more like him. Uh, in which I said, yes, but it really felt, it would feel very conceited for me to get up here and say, um, yeah, in fact, I, I, I have a ready appearance. I have beautiful eyes. I'm quite handsome, you know. That's why, that's why I relate to David. And then the husband, without miss, missing a beat, said, uh, yeah, no, that's, um, that's, yeah, probably deceitful too. Uh, you don't want to mislead people along the way. And I was like, I love serving at a church and working for people who love you so well. No, it was great. It was a welcomed comment, um, and it was, it was really, really funny. Uh, but truthfully, I do, I'll, I'll at least say, um, why I don't make much more of an emphasis in it is, one, I don't think that that's the main thing. And we still are left with, I mean, a, a very open-ended what Ruddy actually would be applicable to. We get a good feel of what Ruddy feels like probably in the scope of this room. And in this room, when you look around and then look up at me, or especially if you're watching online, because we know how pale we are with these stage lights and a video camera, yes, I look very ruddy in comparison, and so does our lead pastor, Chris. Um, But here's actually some more colorations of ruddy uh, that might fit better in your understanding in the Middle East, in the time. It isn't that you should probably picture David as looking so much like uh, Chris or myself, but probably just a reddish hue to a much, much darker tone. Uh, And so uh, that probably is why I don't emphasize it as much, and why we also have the bit of a doubt, maybe, maybe he is as ready as me. Um, we don't really know what God moves on again is he's not looking at the outward appearance. Uh, he's looking at his heart. And so last week we met David unto the scene. This week Saul meets David 
And David goes into the service of Saul. He begins to serve Saul. So um, we're going to pick back up again in verse 14 of chapter 16. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open them up. Uh, You can turn them on. Uh, We're going to be reading out of the ESV version. If you want a physical copy to follow along with, there's the uh, um, uh, Bibles in the racks and the chairs in front of you. We're going to be on page 239. And then as well, it's going to be on the screen. Um, But always as a reminder that physically we can take a posture, but yet uh, spiritually we are desperate for the Holy Spirit to do with us and change our appearance. I'm going to invite you to be reminded of that by standing for the reading of God's Word. And let's consider the end of chapter 16, starting again in verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to the servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers uh, to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with, a bre- with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, to, uh, by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The very words of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and Lord, thank you for your spirit. Through both your spirit and the consideration of your word today, may we not leave here the same, but may we be transformed by them for your glory now and forever. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Now we jumped back in, starting on verse 14, um, but verse 14 uh, is following this previous section that ended in 13, and we're not entirely certain um, how close these two narratives are together, um, or if there's much time that passes in between them. Um, Obviously, the verses just seem to make it uh, an immediate correlation that there's no time that passes, um, especially between this uh, anointing of the Spirit and the departing of the Spirit. Again, if we had backed up a little bit earlier in verse 13, we would have read and said, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then that immediately goes into 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Some suggest that the spirit is leaving Saul and entering David, and it's an, it's a, it's an in, instant exchange, um, that the spirit has now come upon David, and the only reason it's come upon David is because it has left Saul. And I don't think that there's enough 
there, there certainly it isn't that there's not enough spirit going around. That's not what we're talking about. It's not that there's a, a shortage of the spirit, and so we got to draw from this bank account to bank an investment over there. That's not the case. Um, but I don't also see that they're probably in likelihood that there needs to be this immediacy between the connection. There's probably some time that has passed, and we'll uh, get into that a little bit more. But I think the, the important part is that some time has passed, and in that time, however what that time is, there's something that has happened. And namely, it's about David. Um, namely, I think David here is beginning to be known by the servant or is easily found because his name is becoming more and more known. Uh, there's some characteristics now about David as a man after God's heart that are now employed, uh, employed upon him um, in his anointing, and now he's continuing to live out his life, and now people are getting word of that, and it's being able to spread. These characteristics are beginning to be known true about David. He's known not just as a person who plays the harp, but we also got the descriptors here as a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and then the most important one at the end, and the Lord is with him. So I think some time has passed because now the character of David has begun to be spread around, uh, and I think that takes a little bit of time. Again, how much time, we don't know, but what we do know is that word has gotten out, and now David's easily found. Uh, because again, I think uh, in 1 Samuel, and we've touched on this, and we're going to hit on it several times today, and we're going to hit on it even moving forward. Chronology uh, is not the most important thing in this story of telling of Samuel. Um, that really thematically is a lot of why these groupings of stories are pushed together. And I think this introduction or anointing uh, of David and this induction into the king's court or introduction of David into the king's court, I think they're thematically linked with the movement of the Spirit and, again, with these ties of what we see with human eyes and what God sees with His. But more troubling, perhaps, is not just that the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul, but also that the Lord sends a harmful spirit to Saul. And it's, it's, the author makes very, very clear that these are two different spirits. Um, this is why the first spirit, the spirit of God, spirit is capitalized there. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of God or God's spirit. Um, the second spirit uh, isn't capitalized because this isn't a spirit of God. This is a spirit from God. And again, the author makes this very, very clear in his repetition, uh, especially through the words of the servant, that this spirit is at least sent from God, but it's not of God. Um, and so it's, it's not that Saul's tormenting is coming by the Holy Spirit tormenting Saul. No, that's not the case. It's the removal of the Holy Spirit, but then there is this sent spirit um, that steps in. Uh, the second spirit that's, that's listed here is, is, uh, has an adjective, and this adjective is describing it here in the ESV as harmful. Other translations say words like bad or injurious or even so far as evil. And again, all of these, I think, are appropriate uh, translations of the word, and, 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 I don't, and, and why I think it, it can be a range of those and not just evil, because it is true. The literal word in Hebrew, in Hebrew is most often translated evil. But sometimes evil is used not necessarily, this word's not necessarily conveying a moral application of evil, meaning that the, it is sometimes applied, the good and evil, and it's a moral application, but then sometimes the evil just means bad or just means it's not good for the person, uh, or just means that it causes harm. And so again, I think all these fit. Um, it could be a spirit of Satan, meaning a morally evil spirit, or it could just be some other spirit um, that's not necessarily evil in nature, but whatever the nature is of the spirit, again, we can't miss. It's being sent by God. 
which has left a lot to question, uh, especially a hard question that a lot of people struggle with in this passage, is how can a loving God send a harmful or hurtful spirit? And what we see, especially when we consider Scripture, is so many times we can take that in our own application, in our own uh, uh, way of wrestling with it in our brain and come to the place that those things have to be at contradiction. But a lot of times for Scripture and what we know in God's revealed truth and for God as sovereign and ultimate in control God, these things aren't in contradiction. His nature is still a loving God, and yet he can send judgment through a spirit. And I think that that is more what's going on here. God is loving. He has given free will. In his love, there are consequences for our sin. And so in the, the presence of evil, spirit here doesn't negate the presence of God's love. In fact, in the full story of God's love, well, we know the end. We have the book. We have the ending. God's love deals with all evil when he puts all things right again, and evil is dealt with. But Saul receives this harmful spirit, again, I think, as a direct application or consequence of his actions. He receives the spirit because it's the natural consequence for the sin. It's the judgment from the Lord, a righteous God, and of Saul, who is sin, sinning, and then now this is the natural outplay of that. One author put it as, uh, God just gave Saul what he wanted. Um, Saul was silencing the spirit. Saul was disobeying the spirit. Saul wasn't in line with the voice of the spirit, and he wanted it not to be there, and so God... Uh, then gave him what he wanted. He removed his spirit. Um, so now Saul doesn't have to listen to the spirit's presence, uh, but now the consequence of that is he has to live, uh, listen to this other spirit, which torments him. Uh, and again, whether this is, whether this is an active um, uh, assignment from God of a spirit or whether this is a passive assignment from God, uh, it doesn't necessarily matter here. It may be, best illustration that I had of this is, uh, it may be especially for you dog owners, you know, when you got to take the dog out or put the dog out in the backyard, there's some of y'all who have dogs that when it's time for them to go back in the backyard, you have to take the dog and get him into the backyard, right? You have to take the dog and actively put them in the backyard. Others have those dogs that all you have to do is just open the door and then boom, the dog goes out, right? Knows exactly what it is and he's already trying to escape. Whether this is God actively sending a spirit down on Saul or whether it's just simply a door has been opened because God has removed his Holy Spirit and in his sovereignty, he knew that what would take that void and what would be rushing in would be an evil spirit. Again, whether it's active or whether it's passive, we don't necessarily know, but what we do know is that God is in control, that it is God. Again, it is God who's the one who is sending this because what is not debatable is not debatable that God is not sovereign over all things. God is, is in control over all things. God is not the author of evil. However, God remains the authority over evil. God does, didn't create evil, but yet God is still sovereign over all things that are evil. And perhaps we would get that better if we studied uh, through Job, because in Job 2, it, it talks about God's nature in this. Uh, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Or the prophet of Isaiah, who speaks of our Lord, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is still clearly the one in control. God is still the one enacting this story. It is in God's sovereignty that Saul has sent this spirit as a judgment for his disobedience. Um, but what we'll see here is this withdrawal of God's spirit and this presence of this tormenting spirit for Saul is, is really it's about the mark of Saul 
losing um, not just his peace of mind, but also losing his kingdom. This is the uh, judgment that is coming from his, ac- his actions of disobedience and thus losing the kingdom. Again, we've read this before in previous studies, chapter 13, uh, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he had commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. God, in all the possibilities of knowing in his control how this would play it out, knew that if Saul was obedient, he would have kept his kingdom. But as a judgment statement, Saul was disobedient. Thus, he then uh, rejects the word of the Lord, as it says in chapter 15, which we studied a couple weeks ago with Chris. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So even though Saul rejected God and lost his kingdom, God is still in control, and as we read and as we will continue to see, God shows mercy upon Saul, will still show Saul mercy. Saul, though, here at this point seems a little bit unaware of what's going on. Um, It is, again, uh, interesting of note. Saul doesn't seem to be the one who's making the identifiers here. Um, He's the one who seems unaware of what to do and what is going on. Uh, And so, again, picking up in verse 15, and so Saul says to, uh, Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. Again, it's hard not to read this negatively against Saul, but apparently here it seems like Saul doesn't know what's going on. And then here's another example that in Saul's ignorance, he has to rely on a servant to be able to tell him what's going on and what to do. In particular, it's highlighted because here now it's not just a servant, but it's a young servant. Uh, so he's, he's again ignorant, and it's the servants once again who have to come up and rescue him. This is actually reminiscence of those who've been with us again all the way time, all the way back to chapter 9 when we studied that. We got to this same thing in the introduction of Saul um, because we had Saul going after his father's donkeys, and we had Saul who's wanting to say, let's give up on this journey. Uh, I got, I'm, I'm tapped out. I don't know what else to do. Let's just go back before my dad misses me. And it's the servant who speaks up and knows of Samuel and knows they should go to Samuel and even even that's the servant who has the means, the silver, uh, to be able to pay Samuel to be able to go to a man of God to get wisdom on this input. And again, thus then God's plan is enacted through that event. But it's Saul who is ignorant when we first met him, and it's the servant who steps up, and that's the pattern we see here again in this passage. But while this is really easy to read negatively towards Saul, it is important that we also do so for ourselves Um, I at least uh, wrote it in my own convictions that it's so often true um, that I am blind to my own spiritual condition or spiritual struggles uh, and the effect of them. Or at least I would say it like this, it's easier to excuse or make excuse for my own evaluation of my own spiritual condition when I'm doing it in isolation and by myself. Often I do think it is our spiritual condition that is better seen by others than it is seen by ourselves. Um, it's often the display and the outwardness that others notice, then is that true or, then, or is that false about what you believe by what they see, I think, in your life. This is why God calls us not to live lives alone. This is why he's called us to live in community, a genuine community uh, invested with the body of believers. We need each other rightly to point out where we are miss- missing it, and we need each other to encourage us towards truth and right living 
Um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his, in his book, Life Together, puts it in a very, very powerful quote. It is a little bit long, but bear with me because I think it communicates this very well. God has willed it that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belaying the truth. This is what we do when we do it alone. We belay the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. I think this is why we at this church encourage small groups. This is why we value marriage as God intended it. This is why we understand that there is a powerful truth here that many, many years ago when Chris and I taught a discipleship program to young men, we taught them the key concept that God does not call anyone to be a lone wolf Christian, to do this by themselves. There's no lone wolf Christians. This is why we are called a body and why we are dependent on the other members of the body to do this together. And so I think, again, by application, I was reminding myself and trying to stop and think, who are those in my life that are my gauge for my holy living? And if you don't have any that you could think of that is your gauge in community, then I guarantee you there's some good ones right here in this room who would be blessed by getting to be that accountability for you and then would be blessed by your accountability to them. I know this church well enough to be confident in that. Um, or maybe you, can, you do have those names, but then as you stop and you think about it, you may think, it's been a little while. And maybe after today, there needs to be a phone call or a coffee meeting set up to touch base in those. Again, are you living as a lone wolf Christian? Are you trying to do this thing alone? As Thomas Merton says in his classic work, no man is an island. Uh, and so we are too are not designed to do this life alone. Do you have brothers and sisters who encourage you in godly living? But again, let's continue because Saul once again goes along with the servant's plan Verse 17, so Saul says, said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the youngest men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. We commented on last week, if you were here, again, this, these, this theme of seeing and sight that happens throughout uh, this chapter and the word that we ran into last week that was uh, translated provide is translated provide here again. But this word literally in Hebrew is just the, word, the verb see. So literally it says, Saul is saying, see for me a man who can play well. And this was the good word play. Then the servant says, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse. And so sight again is being uh, brought back up as a theme. And again, the chronology is not entirely clear. Um, it sounds very immediate here in the passage. Is this... Uh, is this Saul's saying, yeah, go and do this, and then the servant's right there. The youngest one says, I've already done it, uh, and I'm doing this. Or is there some time in between where they've gone out and they've inquired and asked? We don't necessarily know, but I don't think that's what's most important here. Uh, but what is most important here is not only do we get a report on David's ability as a musician, his music ability, but we get another list of David's characteristics, another list that provides for us uh, a, why, again, he can be considered a man after God's own heart. Um, he has this great addition onto being able to be a skillful player. Um, he is a man of valor. He is a man of war. He is prudent in speech. And he is a man of good presence. But most importantly is this last one that I think modifies all the ones previous. I think it's put in there so that we see that the only reasons the first list gets to happen is because of this last phrase, 
and the Lord is with him. This list is clearly modified by the last truth. The only reason David can be described as one of courage or one of wise speech is because the Lord's presence is in his life. And he has a heart for the Lord responding to that presence. It's God's work that is putting these things in David. And David is responding to that work um, by continuing to be obedient to the Lord. And the Lord has a specific use for David's life here now. Um, In verse 19, it says, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. There's another subtle salute to a godly character in David that happens here. It's also a very revealing pattern about how God typically uses or looks to those who he uses for his service, that this character is present in typically before God tends to use him. We'll run it, we're running into this here. We're going to run into it next chapter as well um, because when we stop and we think about it, what is the primary event? What is David doing primarily here in this text that allows him to get an audience in the king's court? Who is he, who is he simply following? His father. He's being obedient to his dad. The only reason, and we'll run through this again with Goliath, the only reason David gets to go and fight Goliath is because David obeys his father and takes the food to his brothers who are fighting in battle. The only reason David gets the opportunity to have a presence in the king's court and to be chosen uh, to, to have this medicinal application of his music ability is because he obeys his father. It's his father, Jesse, who sends David, his son, with this donkey, with bread, with the skin of wine, with a young goat. Jesse sends David. David just simply obeys, and that's what brings him onto this scene. Um, Obedience from David to his father is all the more remarkable, especially if you were here last week, with the potential consideration of strife between him and his father, or at least his father who favors other sons and not him. Again, we saw that in not being invited by Jesse as a son when Samuel told him to bring all his sons. We see it when David is out in the fields taking care of the sheep, the servant's role, uh, not necessarily the son's role. And it is still interesting, though, that David is still fulfilling this role when we run into him here. Even after the anointing has happened, where is David sent back to? He's sent back out to the fields. Does Jesse be like, ah, we'll see if that comes true. I don't know if Samuel got this one in his head. Is he still showing favoritism to his other sons? I don't know. Because some scholars gave the benefit of the doubt last time when we were talking about um, uh, why David was in the fields. And some say, well, it was just because Jesse's family wasn't very prominent. They weren't very wealthy. They couldn't have afforded uh, being able to have a servant out with their, uh, uh, to, to take care of their sheep. Um, but here, this seems to go against that um, because uh, here we have his, his father um, having, having quite a means, quite a gift that's seen. Uh, uh, not just bread and wine, but an entire donkey that he's able to send. And so it isn't that there's a lack of resources. Again, it may be that Jesse's still heart is hardened um, in his approval of his son. Um, but even if Jesse may not have changed his mind about his son, his son doesn't change his mind about obeying his father. Um, Obedience is often the bedrock on which God chooses to use those for his glory. Um, Here, David's obedience has nothing to do with his father's character, but has everything to do with his heavenly father's character. And and ultimately, he's obedient to him first. And that's exactly what we see played out in the next two verses. 
Verse 21, and David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. Again, this is all pointing to there's these events that are going on, but it is God's plan that is happening here. Even if Saul's the one enacting it, and it takes the servants pulling him along to do it, uh, it is God's plan that Saul is, is enacting, that David is participating in, and David has the opportunity for participation in God's work because he is obedient. Again, the chronology here isn't the main thing. Uh, verse 21 seems a little bit out of place. It's probably likely that 21, just as a capstone, was just brought in uh, later in life in this oral tradition and brought back in to, ex- to include all of the things that David does. Uh, because if we, if we move forward from this uh, uh, statement about Saul loving David, putting him in his service, making him his armor bearer, it seems really out of place next week when we'll run into uh, David and Goliath in the story there um, where, uh, where David uh, uh, seemingly is not known by Saul and is like a, uh, a, a mystery character again and it seems like there's another introduction that's going on. Um, this may be, again, Saul's fickleness. It may be a condemnation against Saul that he only thinks of him beneficial for the product that he uses or there's enough time in between. But most likely, I think, uh, again, this is, uh, there's one story of scope that's here that's longer in period with this verse 21 uh, talking about a greater scope of the life. And what we're going to run into next in the next chapter is an event that happens somewhere in the past of what is expressed here in verse 21. Uh, Just like we saw previously that chapter 15 probably likely fits in some of the events of chapter 14, just like we'll see again in future chapters. Uh, Chronology is not simply there, um, but what is there is that we are supposed to acknowledge what God is doing, what his work is, and what his blessing. Uh, Dr. Bill Arnold in his commentary put it like this, and I thought it was good. I put it on the screen. In this text, God's spirit is at work and is blessing David But David also has a responsibility to follow Jesse's instructions and to serve a newly defined role in the royal's court. David is marked by his man of obedience. And then David becomes a blessing to Saul. By David's blessing from God, he then becomes a blessing to others. And here we see him blessing Saul, verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed. And was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And I know a lot of times it is uh, a lot of the commentaries that I went to and, and we're reading, and especially in a lot of the application, there's a lot of um, applications that, that move on from here that talk about uh, the healing power uh, of worship or the God ordained um, uh, institution of singing together as the body of believers. That obviously we can easily relate to this morning, especially when we're led uh, so well uh, in song. Uh, there is a great truth about us getting together and singing truths that maybe aren't true about us now, but hopefully are true because of. God's work and promises, so we sing those. Uh, I don't remember who said it, but years ago I remember hearing the phrase, uh, we don't come to church to speak lies to each other, we come to church to sing them. Uh, Because if we were honest, we just sang it this morning, I surrender all. Uh, In honest application, that is not a correct reflection of where I'm standing right now uh, in my sacrifice for the Lord, but it is a truth. 
It is a truth that I want to claim and I want to sing and I want to sing next to you because ultimately that truth is I am desperate for the Lord to do what he can only do, which is accomplish a great work in me for making myself surrender over not to my own wishes but over to his will. And so, again, we could spend a lot of time, you know, just trying to finish this up about uh, worship, but I think we're blessed uh, here in this place to experience that so often that instead I wanted to go hearken back to this question of how could a loving God send a harmful spirit? Because I don't want to miss God's mercy here on Saul. Again, uh, God has sent this spirit as a judgment for Saul's disobedience. It is through David's obedience that God sends David to Saul. And so it's God's judgment that we see the removal of his spirit and the replacement of that spirit. Uh, But yet it is God's mercy that David uh, gets to come in and play his music. And then again, our chapter closes with the removal of this spirit. And apparently a continuation of this narrative happening on repeat. Apparently the spirit uh, tormenting does come back, and each time David gets to be uh, the object of God's mercy, playing and relieving him of that spirit. And so, what, so it is clear that God's judgment is here for the removement, but removal of his spirit and the placing of the spirit, but God's mercy is still here for Saul to return to. And God's aim in both, God's aim in both, both judgment and in mercy, is for Saul's repentance. Romans 2, 4 says it like this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is done with Saul being king, but God isn't done with Saul's soul and seeking him to repent. He still wants him to repent and obey, and we'll get to that before the end of the book. And I wish it was a little bit more clear in Saul's confession, but that'll be a conversation for another day. But we do know is that now we're going to run into this pattern continuing, these events continuing through the rest of 1 Samuel. We're going to see Saul on a continued decline. We're going to see David continuing to prosper. And we're going to see David prospering because of the continued presence of the Spirit or the Spirit of the Lord. Um, And then we're going to see Saul deeply attached to David, uh, which sometimes is good for David and other times not so much. But I do think in final application... Um, we've, we've, seen this, we've seen Saul receiving the spirit that torments him um, because of his own disobedience and his own sin. But yet we can't relate, namely, on a one-to-one application of that. Um, namely because we're under a different covenant, a different covenantal system where we have a different po- promises and a fulfillment of this covenant uh, and especially some promises related to the Holy Spirit. Um, because we know that for anyone who does believe, for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that the Spirit is placed on them at the point of salvation, and that Spirit never departs. It never goes away. We can't relate to David's cries in Psalm 51 where he pleads out and says, Lord, do not take this Spirit from me. Don't let your Spirit depart from me. Um, that is not the case for us, for those who have put faith in Jesus Christ. That Spirit has come, and that Spirit is a permanent indwelling. We see this, why Jesus in his own words says in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Spirit, to be with you forever. Or why Paul comforts the Ephesians church and vicariously to us in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Sealed, not to be undone. What's the guarantee of it? Timing. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? We've been sealed by the Spirit, and that doesn't depart until it is 
possess, our inheritance is our possession, all for his glory. So for the believer, I don't think we need to fear the Holy Spirit leaving us, but we do need to fear um, quieting the Spirit. The same start of why Saul found himself in the place of the Spirit uh, leaving him, his disobedience, is one that we have to particularly be careful of. Paul says it to the Thessalonians and warns, do not quench the Spirit. Or to the Ephesians, he says the term grieving, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. While our disobedience won't, yell, it won't yield another spirit's possession, disobedience in the life of believers still has its consequences. Um, and when you silent the, silence the spirit and are dealing with undealt un, uh, with sin, it too you will yield a restlessness just like it did with Saul. And so if, if, if you're here this morning and experience restlessness or torment um, from the consequences of your sin, I would just encourage you to do um, what only seems fitting, which is to take sin to the one who can deal with that sin and take it to God. Because it's God who wants to give you rest and not let you live in restlessness. He says to all in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God desires rest for your souls. We're tempted to look for any other solutions. We're tempted to find peace by trying to uh, silence the spirit. But instead, I would say, go to him, take his yoke, and allow his spirit to work, and there find rest. Because again, as it's said and recorded in Luke, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God wills it and is there for you. Repent and confess of your sins. Allow him to work and heal and abide in his presence because he has given us that spirit. and He's called us to work to do with it. And really the question is, are we going to abide in it and are we going to do the job at hand? Acts 1.8 to the disciples and again through all believers in us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How much my life is defined by the powerful participation in the presence of the Spirit in my life. Am I living life according to that or am I trying to silence it and instead try to gain for my own pleasures or my own comfort, trying to silence the Spirit instead of accepting it as a provision? And I would also say this time, if you're stopping and you're reflecting on the Spirit in your life, um, and if you're stopping and you're thinking, you know what, I don't know how to quantify if the Spirit is present in my life. Maybe I don't really understand if that is a true state, to be able to say with confidence that the Spirit is present in my life. Maybe it is that today is the day of salvation for you, and it's the first time that that is a realization or a realization in a new way. And the simple call for you would be to put your faith in God. He would want to heal you of, that, of your sins and place that Spirit inside of you. Uh, again, if that's the state that you're in and you're unsure about that, ask whoever brought you here or come forward and ask one of us. Or maybe you can ask, uh, we always have people who are faithful and willing to pray at the right side of the room. They would love to pray with you. Um, or if with any other request, if you know you just would love to gather um, with a body and not do, so, not do this alone, but pray with others, then they're available here during the invitation. And then lastly, this is also the time uh, that if you've met with Lance or gone through the welcome home uh, process and you acknowledge that you don't want to do this lone wolf Christianity and you need a body of believers to do that with and you want to come and make your church membership known, um, then now would be the time to do this as well. 
But we don't just do invitation every time just as a rote practice because we, we just, this is how we finish uh, services. We know God's truth, uh, his word goes out and doesn't return void. So we assume that there's uh, work to do uh, with the spirit from uh, contact with his word. So I'm going to invite you to stand and sing. Colson and Jeff are going to lead us again. But take whatever posture you need and respond however God lays on your heart.